I think the first thing that Congress needs to do is to stop viewing their job as hyper-regulated healthcare, sure. tinkering with the machinery of the market. That always seem, even among Republicans, their default solution is, oh, we need to restrict the activities of some private uh, sector actor rather than freeing up market, rather than increasing competition, rather than breaking the current regulatory paradigm. So I would love to see Congress just start to have a different type of debate, saying, how can we get more doctors to open independent practices in the United States, increase competition? How can we have more competition among service providers? How can we have more uh, insurance products? I think a key problem right now, especially after the Affordable Care Act, in health insurance is so regulated, the ability to innovate new reimbursement models, new different types of coverage. Americans are capable of achieving extraordinary things when they have the freedom and opportunity to do so. This is American Potential, and here's your host, Jeff Crank. Well, thanks for joining us for another episode of American Potential. Appreciate you being with us. We've done so many shows on healthcare because it affects so many people, it affects their lives with issues ranging from price transparency to inefficiencies in government programs having a potentially negative impact on patients. And as complicated and burdensome as the healthcare system can be, what are some of the solutions to the issues facing healthcare today? Well, we have two guests today to talk about how to improve this system. Our first guest is Brian Blaze, who's the president of Paragon Health Institute, and he's also the director of Paragon's Private Health Reform Initiative. He's held roles as a senior research fellow at the Galen Institute, a visiting fellow at the Foundation for Government Accountability, and CEO of Blaze Policy Strategies. Brian also served as a special assistant to the president for economic policy at the White House's National Economic Council from 2017 to 2019. He's a regular contributor to publications like Forbes, Health Affairs, The Hill, New York Post, and The Wall Street Journal. Our second guest is Joe Grogan, a healthcare expert with over two decades of experience in the Washington, D.C. healthcare arena, now combining private sector and government roles. Currently, a senior fellow at the Leonard D. Schaefer Center for Health Policy, and economics at the University of Southern California, Joe's served various senior government positions, and his recent roles include domestic policy advisor to President Trump, overseeing the president's healthcare agenda, and associate director for health programs at the Office of Management and Budget. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Great. Thanks for having us. Thank now, you. how come when I was doing the introduction, I saw Joe kind of smirk when I was saying nice things about you, Brian? <laughs> how, why is that? Kind of an extensive uh, bio that he gave you with all his achievements <laughs> on there. That's my observation. He could he could shorten it. Joe, Joe's time. also the chairman of Paragon's board, so it's always nice to hear the chairman of your board saying positive <laughs> things about you. <laughs> it is. Well, as we've kind of been sitting here getting ready to do this, it's obvious you two are friends, right? Yes. And uh, and you've been in this battle quite a while. So yeah, I mean, we spent uh, we're colleagues at the White House and. Joe was there almost the entire, I guess you were there three and a half years. Yeah. I was there two and a half years. And when you work that closely with someone and you feel like, you know, the whole world is 
against you, you develop uh, really close friendships because you're like in the foxhole yeah. together. So we had that experience. Let's start with that because, you know, in, in all these interviews, anytime I interview people who've gotten to work in the, in the White House, you know, I worked in Congress. I always thought it was so special to be able to do that. And so few people out of all of the millions of Americans, hundreds of millions of Americans, get to do something like that. Same is true for the White House, even more so, I think. Um, well, was that pretty cool? I mean, let's, let's start with you. Was yeah, it I mean, it, re it really was. I mean, you think about when you're a little kid and what you want to do with your life, and you think, would you ever have the opportunity to drive into the White House gate every day, uh, park your park your car and go to work? Um, it, it was just a sort of a dream come true. Um, and I had a blast every day going in there, working with great people, and you get you get the filled with a great sense of patriotism being able to work there. Yeah, Brian. Yeah, I mean, really, it's the it's a privilege of a lifetime to uh, drive into work, and you know, uh, I worked across the street in the executive office building, but it's a beautiful, uh, ornate building, and we had our morning staff meetings in the West Wing. And just a privilege, like we, Joe and I, want to uh, affect public policy for the better. And you get to be at sort of the pinnacle of the ability to shape policy in the direction, um, you know, where we want to expand freedom and uh, limited government and to have access to the president, you know, and be able to brief the president and the senior advisors to the president and really make a difference in changing public policy. Right. Coolest thing you, you remember from your time at the White House. What's the coolest thing? Uh, it's at the, um, the president signed an executive order in the fall of 2017 after the legislative health care efforts around Obamacare failed, and that kicked off four um, actions. And my main role was to successfully implement those actions. Um, and the one that was sort of took the longest time, uh, and which I think is long term going to be the most impactful, it's this policy where employers, instead of selecting the plans for all of the workers at the firm, they can provide a contribution that's tax preferred, and the worker takes that contribution and buys a plan in the individual market that works best for them. Um, I got to brief the president uh, on that policy change um, on June 14th. I was a lead briefer. And then the president uh, rolled it out in a rose garden ceremony. And I got to be in the front row. Uh, my parents and wife got to come. That's cool. And it was really, I mean, I, I have never felt after that day just such a profound uh, degree of like just satisfaction from, I mean, it took a long time, it took a two-year process, right. lots of meetings um, and discussions and decisions. But to get that across the finish line and have the president roll it out uh, in a rose garden ceremony uh, yeah. was, I mean, that, that was the pinnacle for me. Yeah, that's that's really cool. That's a great story. And again, how many people have anything close to that as a story, like in their professional career? That's amazing. Joe, how about you? Yeah, I mean, when it's funny because when I started at the White House, I was also in the uh, old executive office building right. or the Eisenhower executive office building. And then I became domestic policy advisor so my office was in the West Wing, and I had sometimes I'd be in the Oval Office three times a day, um, and the tempo of interactions just were were uh, far greater being that close to the president, traveling on Air Force One. Um, you know, as an experience, I'd say taking off on Marine One from the White House lawn is incomparable. I would um, imagine because yeah. no one else can do that, right? Unless you're on the president's helicopter, right. you're never going to be able to do that. But there were a lot of great uh, policy wins and announcements that we did 
in healthcare um, and as domestic policy advisor, is able to work on other ones too. Executive orders that he signed, great ceremonies that he uh, that he presided over on uh, improving America's mental health or uh, organ transplant uh, process improvements to speed the um, the matching process to save lives. I mean, just a, a tremendous tempo of great yeah. policies that we put into place. Yeah. How about for just this one episode, we can call this the Joe Grogan podcast. Do you want to do that? Would that be okay? I object. <laughs> well, I mean, it might, might increase our ratings. That's over. true. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Anyway. I have, uh, I have, uh, when I've gone into restaurants with reservations, and they, they look at me when I when I say this is Joe Grogan, and they with profound disappointment. Oh, we thought we thought you yeah. said Rogan. We gave you the preferred table. We've got to find a new table for you. That's funny. That's great. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Paragon Health Institute, Brian. Yeah, yeah. Tell us what you do. So Paragon has been around a little over two years, and um, I think it's really important that we have a policy organization that is centrally focused on health care and entitlements um, and looking at it from the perspective of patients should be in the driver's seat. Um, you know, we believe uh, in free market, free enterprise, limited government principles, um, sort of the uh, uh, expanded choices for consumers. We need a competitive marketplace. Um, and we need a regulatory climate that's conducive to innovation. And there's so many problems with government health programs, and really they advantage um, the incumbents over the entrepreneurs and the disruptors. Um, so we are here to evaluate how government programs are actually working, not just the intentions behind the programs, and to make reforms that get the incentives right. Because right now, so many of the incentives are just for um, more spending, uh, more uh, sort of concentrated power, more decision making in Washington, and we need to get the incentives aligned so that you know consumers, patients, employers, providers are focused on how we can get value out of all of the spending um, that we do through the healthcare system. So there's lots of things that can be done, right? And I think, uh, you know, President Trump did did many good things, right, in the in the area of healthcare. Uh, but there's lots of other things that Congress can do. And and uh, maybe I'll start with you, Joe. What, what do you think some of the things that Congress can do or the federal government can do to, to really uh, help patients be more in control of their healthcare? Right. I think, um, I think the first thing that Congress needs to do is to stop viewing their job as being hyper-regulators for healthcare sure. and tinkering with the machinery of the market that always seems, even among Republicans, their default solution is, oh, we need to restrict the activities of some private uh, sector actor rather than freeing up the market, rather than increasing competition, rather than breaking the current regulatory paradigm. So I would love to see Congress just start to have a different type of debate saying, how can we get more doctors to open independent practices in the United States, increase competition? How can we have more competition among service providers? How can we have more uh, insurance products? I think a key problem right now, especially after the Affordable Care Act, is in health insurance is so regulated, the ability to innovate new reimbursement models, new different types of coverage, is profoundly restricted. So insurance companies have no way of coming up with new innovative products to keep people healthier and bring costs down. 
um, there was actually a fair amount of burdening uh, of burgeoning uh, innovation before the Affordable Care Act uh, went into place. But it really shut a lot of innovative products and nascent innovation and reimbursement right down. So that is a big problem. We need more innovation on the reimbursement and coverage side. I'll give you an, uh, an analogy on this. I spent a lot of my time in my career in the pharmaceutical and device industry on the innovation side. We spent a ton of time trying to figure out what are the policies that Congress can put in place to increase the number of drugs that are invented, devices are invented, and increase competition on that side. We've done none of that. Congress has done none of that on the insurance and reimbursement side. We don't have nearly enough innovation. Uh, it's never good when, I think, when government picks winners and losers in, in anything, right? Whether right. it's subsidies, energy policy, whatever. But it seems like in healthcare, government definitely puts its thumb on the scale, right? And I guess I'll start with you, Joe. I mean, th that essentially, it seems like stifles, obviously stifles innovation, stifles um, uh, competition in, in the marketplace of healthcare when the federal government is doing that. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And they, you know, in the whole sectors of healthcare, they set the rates um, and they set up a bureaucratic structure at Health and Human Services where government bureaucrats choose what to pay for certain services. Uh, I hate to use the analogy, but it's apt. I mean, it didn't work for the Soviet Union to set the price of wheat in the basement of the Politburo. It's not going to work for us to be setting prices for things with a bunch of bureaucrats. It's just not going to work. Now, we're not, because we're Americans, we are not going to become better central planners than the, the Soviets. Right. We're better innovators. We're better right. market leaders. We, you know, because we believe in human potential and human creativity and individual uh, merit and innovation. That's what America's strength is. It's not in central planning. And it's why you see this tremendous disparity of American innovation in certain sectors, but not uh, an ability to control costs and improve outcomes in healthcare. Right. Yeah, and I can, um, I think that's exactly right. And just to, to build on, I mean, the way that the Medicare system is set up, you have the bureaucracy determine what gets reimbursed. Mm -hmm. and at what reimbursement rate. And I did a tweet um, uh, this week, which um, uh, was that Medicare, every single price that Medicare sets, and it sets prices throughout the entire healthcare sector, is wrong. Um, <laughs> and Medicare often is only looking at the cost. Um, so when it sets the physician fee schedule, it looks at the inputs. It looks at the time and intensity uh, the resources that a physician's going to use to treat a patient, it doesn't look at the value at all. Mm -hmm. So it's totally missing a huge part of the equation. Um, if you are a student of uh, you know basic economics, you know the most important thing in economics is that prices need to be able to fluctuate to provide information and incentives about what's really valued. Um, and when prices go up, Right, that's a sign that we need to get more um, of that product, that that product is providing value and producers need to come in and uh, figure out how to produce that product and do it more efficiently so that the price can come down. But you don't have those market signals in healthcare. And so much of the resource allocation is based on how much political power the different interest groups have. Uh, you have, um, you know, Joe mentioned health insurers. Health insurers get more than half of their revenue now from the government. 
Uh, Humana is a major insurer in the country, and they dropped out of commercial insurance. They are only participating in Medicare and Medicaid because they can make so much money through the government programs. Um, and they, these incumbent actors, they are doing really well from the status quo, and they try to limit the competition that they face. So it's just a huge obstacle. And it's not just at the federal level. You've got a lot of uh, very perverse regulation at the state level that also restricts the ability of entrants and entrepreneurs to come in and disrupt the status quo and you know create these efficiencies that you get throughout basically every other sector of the economy. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about like you're mentioning reimbursement rates, and I've heard from many people how the government will set like a, a Medicare reimbursement rate at a certain level, and then physicians say, well, I can't make any money doing that, so they just close off access to, to Medicare patients. I mean, that's, that's a concern. And again, anytime government is just arbitrarily setting that, uh, that's going to happen, right? And one of the problems with the government price setting there is it pays more if services are delivered in hospitals than in doctor's offices. So you have the government policy creating incentives for doctors to sell their private practice and become employees of hospital systems. Okay. Um, and consolidation in the healthcare sector has been a significant, it's a growing issue. And basically all the studies that look at it show it increases prices and and generally doesn't do anything to improve quality, often um, is detrimental to the quality of care. Yeah. There's a, and healthcare is complicated because the federal government's involved, the, you know, the state is involved, you've got insurance regulations at, at the state. Uh, Joe, let me start with you on this one. Um, there's lots of things that Americans for Prosperity has been working on in the healthcare arena, whether it's you know eliminating certificate of need in mm-hmm. states, um, uh, you know scope of practice legislation. There's lots of things at the state level that can be done. Telehealth that's a that's a growing uh, issue, uh, you know, for folks. Which COVID, you know, I think laid bare for all of us how important that was. What are some of the, I guess, let me ask you about those state reforms and how important those are for states to do it. But then also at the federal level, what are specifically some of the reforms you think that that we can do? Yeah, I mean, look, I think the certificate of need law issue is one even that some Democratic states have started to pick up based upon the uh, leadership of people in the Stand Together Network. And Brian's been very uh, outspoken on the certificate of need laws restricting competition. Um, I think the key thing the, the federal government could do is, is if they started to rethink the current Affordable Care Act structure. I mean, we can talk about Medicare um, nonstop, and there are a number of reforms that we need to go to, but it would be very simple if we were to just say, okay, the Affordable Care Act was set up to make sure that everybody is going to get health care if they need it. That's the central point of the Affordable Care Act. But we are overpaying a bunch of insurance companies to provide coverage to people who don't need it. And then there are people that really do need coverage because they are sick and they can't afford the premiums or they have to bankrupt them. They have to uh, quit their jobs to earn less in order to qualify for enhanced subsidies in order to be able to afford the coverage. Because in some cases, the premiums and deductibles can be tens of thousands of dollars for a family to afford the uh, Affordable Care Act coverage. So I think restructuring it to focus on people who are truly sick and could not get insurance coverage, say people with uh, a child with a genetic disorder that's incredibly expensive to keep that child 
uh, functional or somebody with a very uh, a very complicated disease. It's expensive, but if if you're healthy, you should be able to buy a far more inexpensive product from a unsubsidized insurer out there. So Brian worked very hard at the uh, during the Trump administration to sh- to free up something called short term limited duration insurance, which I know plenty of people who purchase. The Obama administration had really clamped down on it because it was competition for the Affordable Care Act. And we expanded it. It was a growing, uh, growing successful product that people were choosing. The Biden administration came in and shut it down. So I think you need, if people want to keep their Obamacare, maybe they should be able to do so, but there should be other options for people who don't. And the, and the focus of the federal government and the American taxpayer dollars should be on the truly needy uh, to make sure that they get good health care coverage and those people who can afford to pay it should be able to buy affordable products that fit their family's needs. Right. Um, I'll give you three other um, uh, policies for Congress. One would be to build on the, pre- the price transparency rules that came out of the Trump administration. I think Americans... Uh, know that they should be able to know prices in yeah. advance of receiving health care. And that's also something that's important for employers, since employers are such big purchasers of health care, um, building on the price transparency rules, making sure that health plans, insurers, and hospitals are providing the price information in advance. The second would be to address the site new, the, something called site-neutral payments. So I mentioned Medicare paying more for service, the same service if it's in a hospital system than in a doctor's office. Um, that's just an unjustified uh, cost for... And that's the, just a regulation because they decided, I mean, they wanted to do it because the lobbyists got to them or what? I mean... it's The, the hospital lobbyists yeah. are very powerful. Right. Yes. So to take on the hospitals, it's going to be politically um, uh, challenging. Uh, but I think you have some bipartisan support uh, you have the sort of think tanks uh, across the political spectrum aligned that site neutral uh, payment is a uh, is a really common sense step uh, and would reduce one unnecessary payments for taxpayers and beneficiaries, but also reduce the incentives for consolidation. The third um, is to address a major inequity that came with uh, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act's Medicaid expansion. So Medicaid is a welfare program. Uh, historically for low-income kids, pregnant moms, uh, people with disabilities, and low-income seniors. And what Obamacare did was expand it to able-bodied, working age, mostly childless adults. Um, But it created a much higher federal payment rate for the expansion population than for the traditional population. So actually the first three years of the Medicaid expansion, the federal government paid the entire cost of the expansion population. Uh, It phased down, but it's at 90%, and it's um, supposed to be at 90% uh, in perpetuity. Uh, The average reimbursement for these traditional populations is much lower. the federal government should around not 50%. be around fifty percent. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but around sixty percent. Sixty percent. Yeah, the federal government should not be discriminating against low-income kids, pregnant moms, and people with disabilities um, over in, in um, and advantaging this Obamacare population. And you've seen studies now um, that show that states are taking resources from who the Medicaid program was intended for for these low-income kids and people with disabilities and spending them on this able-bodied population. And that discrimination should end. 
Um, they should not, uh, the, the, the federal payment rates uh, that states receive should be equal for each of those uh, groups. And I think, you know, given there's got to be entitlement reform, I mean, uh, we haven't talked about this yet, but the, uh, uh, the health care component of the federal budget is the one that is the most unsustainable and where the trajectory um, uh, needs to change in order to get the U.S. back on a sensible and sustainable uh, budget course and uh, Medicaid reform is going to be part of that. And this, to me, is the most sensible, um, uh, common sense uh, way that you know, conservatives should get on board with reforming mm-hmm. healthcare care yeah. programs. Yeah. The, um, let me give you an example of the, like the transparency issues. You were talking about this. I was thinking about my own situation. I've got a torn meniscus in my knee. Mm-hmm. I went to the doctor. He says, I think your meniscus is torn. But before we do surgery, we have to do an MRI. And he sent me like immediately without any choice or anything else right. to his MRI facility. I have no idea what that cost, right? Because I have no skin in the game, yep. right. right? So wouldn't it be, I mean, that's such a great example of how if I knew and I had skin in the game and I had to pay a part of that, you know, maybe it was $500 at his facility, but it was slightly cheaper at another one, I would choose the slightly cheaper. But if somebody else is paying for it, I mean, there's no, the, the convenience is it's right down the, just at the next door. Of right. course, I'm going to go to the more expensive one, right? Right? right. But sometimes you can get hit with a deductible for that service and that you had no idea what it, right. your your exposure was going to be depending on the site of sure. service, you know, and it can be pretty, uh, it can be pretty variable. I mean, I, when you think about the complicated transactions that people make in their lives, you know, buying a home, you sit there and you go through at closing why I'm paying this six months worth of taxes on this and this is the mortgage and this is going to be homeowners insurance. You think about buying a car. Okay. I've got the, the extra fancy rims. That's an extra 500 bucks or whatever you go down. You can't really do that in healthcare, right? right? Yeah. You get these bills that are incomprehensible with codes that make absolutely no sense. (laughs) And then you ignore the bill the first, second and third time because it, it, the first bill says you owe $40,000, and then finally it, it keeps on going down with each subsequent right. bill. And then sometimes you'll get another bill from somebody who was out of network, and he did part of the res- procedure. But it's totally crazy that we don't have greater visibility into what we will be paying before we have a procedure. Yeah. And that, I think, is something that President Trump understood when we took him that policy and said this is something we want to do. And the most vocal opponents of it have been the hospitals who do not want to provide these prices to the uh, patients in advance. And frankly, it's outrageous. We wouldn't tolerate this in any other sector of the economy. Uh, A a seller saying, we are not going to tell you how much we are charging you until after the fact. Right, right, right. How about uh, portability? I mean, that's a, a growing issue too. Healthcare has always, health insurance has always been, seems like, tied to your employer in America. Mm-hmm. And when we, you know, that that's a problem. Like like a pension. I look at the pensions, right? If you have a defined right. benefit pension plan, if you leave that job after eight years, it doesn't go with you, right? But if you have a 401k plan, that 401k plan can go with you. Same thing could be true of healthcare, where, uh, you know, we have this portability, and I leave one job and I can go choose it. Should we move in that direction, Joe? Yeah, you know, it's a really good question. And I think since so much of the um, that's regulated at the state law in the commercial market, I think you do need some reforms in that area. I'll give you a, a, an example, like why, again, going back to my um, 
an employee with a child who has a genetic condition that's very expensive to maintain. We are, we are beginning to see new treatments for these conditions, very small population treatments that because you can't, like for instance, um, uh, Lipitor is a drug that many Americans take. The drug companies, it's not a cheap drug, but you make a, a, your money off a huge population. Some of these genetic treatments, you only know of a thousand people, right. sometimes 500 people who have this genetic condition, 8,000, 500, you know. So you have to charge a lot in order to incentivize people to invent these things. If the employer's insurance company pays for that treatment, uh, say $1.5 million, $500,000, that's a big hit. And then the employee moves on to the next position. You want the insurance company to cover that treatment to get that child cured or improved, but you also don't want, you want them to benefit from that treatment, right? And the employee goes to another employer. Uh, they've, they don't have to pay for the cost for somebody that just uh, had the treatment six months before. So mm -hmm. some type of high risk pool rider, I think is, would be interesting to look at that allows for portability for high cost treatments and, and would allow people to move a little bit more and also strengthen the employer market. Because mm -hmm. I happen to believe in employer-sponsored insurance, I think it's a nice big risk pool and it is a bulwark against single payer. So I'd like to see some improvements in that regard um, to, to lubricate the market uh, a little bit and allow for some degree of portability. Yeah, so I mean, I think um, employer-sponsored insurance is, it definitely has its advantages. Um, but one of the uh, problems is that it gives employers a lot of control over a worker's wages. Like the, uh, uh, the health insurance is not a gift from the employer. Uh, the health insurance comes from foregone worker wages. And, you know, there's no other financial product that we purchase that we give our employer uh, the, the, uh, the way to structure our choices. And right. a lot of uh, workers only have a, a choice of one plan. Right. Um, what we did, and the regulation I mentioned uh, that President Trump announced, um, uh, allows employers, and we actually call it the 401k of health insurance, where the employer provides the contribution and the tax treatment is the same. So workers don't pay uh, any income or payroll taxes on the health insurance premium. So it's the same with this contribution. So the worker gets this contribution and then takes it to buy a plan that works best for them. Now, they can only currently buy plans in the ACA individual market. And as we think on how to like sort of uh, propel this defined contribution health insurance model, um, it would be improving the, uh, the plans that workers can use to purchase the coverage. What's nice about this model is it's voluntary. So if employers and employees like the traditional group plan structure, they can keep that. Um, but if they want to migrate into sort of this new model where for the employer, it's really just a matter of figuring out what the contribution is going to be. Um, they set the contribution for their workers, establish the budget, and then the workers can um, uh, select the plan that works best for them. Yeah. Okay. How about uh, HSAs, health savings accounts? I was stunned. I have a health savings account. I love it. But I was stunned to find out that only 10% of Americans are even eligible for an HSA because it's, you, can, you have to have the high deductible health plan. Um, 
Should we extend that? Why, why would we not extend that to give more options to every American to, to, to be able to use an HSA? Yeah, so it is, um, I think it's slightly more than 10% of Americans, but uh, uh, your point's well taken that it's not nearly as many Americans that yeah. have HSAs okay. as should. Uh, this I think wouldn't you, be the first time I'm wrong, by the way. Um, <laughs> I was just reviewing a paper, a uh, Paragon paper, and I thought that the um, uh, we were about up to close to 40 million HSA accounts oh, in the excellent. country, Great. and that there's over $100 billion of deposits in HSAs. Wow. But you flag the number one problem with policy in this area is that too few plans can be integrated with the HSA. So it's not just you need to have a certain deductible. You have to have other requirements on the plan in addition to that. Um, and I think it's a, a, a very no-brainer no uh, to uh, support policy that makes it easier for more Americans to benefit from HSAs. And actually, Paragon has a proposal that even goes further than that. Uh, because we don't like uh, the way a lot of these government subsidies work because they are, you know, you get in, you, you, you're a beneficiary of a public program, but the check doesn't go to you to control. It goes to the insurance company mm -hmm. and the insurance company then uses that to, you know, reduce deductibles. Um, so we think that um, uh, people should have an option if they qualify for a government program. Uh, and a government subsidy to take that subsidy under their control in a health savings account. So then they can choose um, the health care that best meets their needs instead of the uh, the government sending the check to the insurance company for the insurance company to control yeah. it. Why, why is it that Americans, all Americans don't have access to HSA? Is it because Congress doesn't want to give the tax benefit for that and the reduced revenue? It's is that the only reason? The, 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 yes. So there is, um, there's a budgetary effect with HSAs. They're going to, I mean, HSA is a very good tax benefit. Sure. It's triple tax advantage, right? right. You don't pay tax on the deposit, it, the investment grows tax free, right. and then you don't pay tax when you make a withdrawal for a healthcare expense. Um, so there's some budgetary um, consequences. They wanted to pair it with the high deductible health plan because they thought that is a way, the high deductible is the way to get. Um, cost-conscious consumers. So you have the HSA available uh, for individuals that have out-of-pocket exposure to healthcare. Yeah, but it does seem like, I mean, we talk on this show a lot about government-imposed barriers mm -hmm. to people, and that's a government-imposed barrier. The government isn't allowing you as an individual to have an HSA because you're on a particular plan because it would reduce the revenue, coming, the tax revenue coming into the federal government. I think we should. Um, there is so much government spending on healthcare right. that doesn't produce value and that has bad incentives. HSAs produce good incentives right. because it's a person spending their own money, sure, and uh, they have an incentive to economize because the, the the benefits roll over year to year. Yeah. So I am a big proponent of reducing government subsidies on just about everything else the government spends on healthcare. And if we're going to have a budgetary cost from expanding HSAs, right. then that's a much better um, budgetary cost. And you're right. right; it's it's a it's a tax cut. It's not a it's not a spending right. increase. Okay. All right, Joe. Uh, Congressman Sessions has has a bill in Congress that does a lot of really good free market stuff. Mm -hmm. One, I, I don't know how familiar you are, probably very familiar with his legislation, but would love to hear your thoughts on that as well as you know what Congress can do. This is a big issue. Healthcare, it seems every year, you know, yeah. immigration's a hot issue this year, inflation's a hot issue this year. Healthcare is always a hot issue for right. for voters as they go to the polls. How can uh, how can we deal with that at the federal level and 
talk a little bit about sessions, Bill. Well, I, you know, it, you're absolutely right. Every, every, every poll on healthcare uh, captures Americans' discontent with the current system. Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals, they're all upset with it costs too much, it's too complicated, it's very difficult to navigate uh, going through the administrative hoops and the bureaucracy to get the care that you want. And it's, it's just baffling to people. This whole conversation you just had about a health savings account uh, is it, it illustrates how badly we need that innovation to put give people more control and have this, uh, not just the sense of control, but the reality of control over their own health care dollars and where they're going to go uh, for their treatment. Sessions bill is a great bill. You know, it's a step in the right direction. It's geared towards giving more control. Uh, I think Brian's right. I think if we were, if Congress were to just do that, that uh, Paragon proposal to move the, uh, the subsidies from the insurance companies to the individuals in the form of health savings accounts, and then freed up a little bit of choices in the coverage market, we would go a long way to improving yeah. outcomes and, and controlling costs. Now, just think about that different paradigm shift. Congress, instead of saying, oh, we need a new regulation on the insurance companies, or we need a new tax on this, or we need to spend more money, they're putting Americans in charge. They're freeing up the market. That would be the improvement. Uh, and the more members of Congress need to think that way. Um, and I think I think Sessions' bill, you know, it's not going to go anywhere right away, but it's an important step in the right direction that Republicans need to be coming up with these things, working it through the committee process. And there are Democrats now that are voicing uh, concerns with the way the Affordable Care Act works for the first time. You know, they were all in lockstep basically saying it was perfect, but they're admitting that some of the underlying uh, provisions, the original provisions, have screwed up the incentive structure. And I think that there's going to be an opportunity at some point in the near future for bipartisan legislation to do some of these things. Yeah, let me give you, uh, I think, two heuristics for how to evaluate whether a policy change moves us in the right direction or the wrong direction. The first is who's got the financial control? And is it the government and the health insurance companies that have the financial con control, or is it the uh, consumer or the patient? So anything that moves us from financial control away from the government and insurers to the individual is a change in the right direction. The second um, is over price setting. Is the government, um, uh, are we moving in the direction of the government have more control over what gets reimbursed and what the reimbursement rate is? Or are we allowing market forces uh, to determine what gets reimbursed um, and what the reimbursement rate is. And anything that moves us away from centralized control in allocating resources, I mean, and that can obviously be barriers to entry in the marketplace too, is a step in the right direction. Because we've got to improve the demand side, which is empowering the consumers and giving them more control. And we've got to free the supply side um, from all of the government and the lobbyist uh, preferences. Yeah, right. Okay, thank you both for joining me. I appreciate it. Um, who won the big pickleball match this <laughs> Brian, morning? Brian uh, lives in Florida and plays a lot of pickleball, so it's tough to take it's him on. He's to somewhat of a ringer. That's I got right. taken advantage of. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Next year. Uh, yeah. But you win the podcast name award, right? Like, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the Brian Blaze show. 
Waze is a good last name. It's a good last name, <laughs> yeah, but it, so. it's not as good as the Joe Grogan podcast. I mean, that's <laughs> pretty classic, right? So anyway, thanks for joining us. Thank, well, you. thank you. Fun. All right. Well, listen, this is an area we've talked so much about, uh, healthcare and its impact on the American people. And I know of almost no other sector where we have so much government intrusion and intervention in the marketplace. And if we're going to make changes for the better, for people to have more choices, not less choices in healthcare, we've got to get the government uh, more and more out of the business, uh, as Brian said. Uh, so th this was a great topic. Appreciate you joining us on this episode of American Potential. And as always, liberty and freedom are so precious. They're like your health. When you have health, you don't worry about it. Everything is great. But as soon as you have a threat to your health, it concerns you and you fight for that. Same thing is true with liberty and freedom. Fight for your liberty and freedom. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to American Potential. You may listen to more stories from Americans working every day to expand freedom and opportunity in their communities by visiting AmericanPotential.com.